Thunder Media. Today, we conclude our look at Premier Racing with the team principal, Matt Cook. Cook started his supercars journey with Dick Johnson Racing, and he still remembers that first time at the track. Cool, I still remember my first race meeting at Winton. I think we were on the podium, and I thought, how easy is this? You know, this is pretty cool. <laughs> but the competition was a little bit different to what it is today, and the technology was a little bit different. But nonetheless, it was still amazing to um, to be a part of. And I was hooked from the first race meeting. Even after his first weekend with Premier, he's got some hard chats to have back in Queensland. We can't have performance until we have reliability and at the moment we need some massive reliability and the performance will come with that. So yeah, there's gonna be um, a good debrief uh, next week. There is a plan to go faster and a test day before Hidden Valley, the next round of the championship. This car, yeah, we're testing this this coming Monday week and you know, we've gotta still try and iron out a few bugs and, and see what's going on and try and progress forward. It's all about putting procedures in place and you know, hitting these little one percenters so the car doesn't stop and just continues down a, a very strong path. Premier Racing's Matt Cook joins us on this edition of Inside Supercars. I hope you'll stay with us. Hi, I'm Chaz Mostert. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. This program is brought to you by P1 Australia Racing Components, the designer of the oil heat mats for dry sump tank applications. Find out more about the truths on engine oil heating at p1australia.com. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars, Tony Whitlock and Craig Ravel, and we're talking here with Matt Cook, who's had his first taste as a race weekend as a team principal. And I noted you did have your hands in your pockets for a while, Matt. That was a, that's the sort of scene that you, a team principal should have, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it's hard to not to not get in and get, and get stuck into it, but yeah, obviously in a non-performance role now, there's there's things that you have to do and rules you have to abide by. So yeah, a little bit of hands in pocket, but that was also because of the horrible cold weather. And of course, your second weekend as team principal will be a different one because the man who owns the team, instead of where he is at Heath, Heathcote Park Raceway this weekend, he'll be there drag racing in the track opposite and then standing beside you. Uh, imagine that you'll enjoy the process. Yeah, very, very, very busy for him. Double duties, you know, as you said, driving and then coming back to be the team owner. But hopefully, not hopefully, I'm pretty sure he's going to spend a fair bit of time with the drag car and, and he'll, he'll come over in the mornings, I think, before he, the, the sun gets dark and he starts to race his drag car. It's, it's pretty insane what he does. I mean, at age 53, I mean, seven years ago, he decided to race it. And he told me a story about how he went to buy a truck and the bloke said, oh, I'm selling the, the rail as well. Oh, I'll buy that as well. I mean, yeah, of course, why wouldn't you, you know? Yeah, I don't actually know that story, but all I know is those things are incredibly fast. It's like jumping on a rocket and just firing yourself down a, a quarter mile. You know, they reach speeds of 540, 550k an hour. And I have heard that sometimes some new drivers, they almost black out when they launch off off the line. So for him to be able to, to be physically fit enough to jump in one of those things and tear down a, a quarter mile in three seconds at 500 plus k an hour, it's very impressive. 
Now, while it's been a tough weekend, you've had some success here, moving forwards on the grid and things like that, but your background is that you know this game pretty well, both in a motorsport as in other categories, but also in this particular one where you've been at Triple Eight for some years. How long, how many years at Triple Eight? Yeah, just nine and a half years, nearly 10 years at the end of this year. Okay, and of course, most recently you were running a Super 2 and GT programs, and the GT involved Asia as well. So you'd been up there a number of times? Yeah, very, very busy. I think pre-COVID, you know, when we were flat out doing GT uh, Asia and Super 2, with a bit of pre-season testing in Sepang, we ended up being away about 18 weekends a year. So we were busier than the main series guys back then. And, and you know, that was going to continue on this year as well because they're, they're continuing to do GT Asia, GT Australia and Super 2. So yeah, busy times. It's not, it's not as if you're sitting around for weeks in between race meetings. It's uh, sometimes finish one race meeting on a Sunday night in Australia and we're overseas the Monday morning. So yeah, it was very, very tiring. Okay, you've got now a couple of weeks to go back to the factory and of course you're going back to a new factory. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, that's been very exciting. Can't wait to move into that. It's been uh, it's been a couple of months in the in the process. So we're gonna we're not gonna rest on our heels. You know, we, we didn't have the best weekend as you said, but we're gonna go testing uh, this coming mo Monday week and then um, try and uh, and then. This car, yeah, we're testing this this coming Monday week, and you know we've got to still try and iron out a few bugs and and see what's going on and, and try and progress forward. It's all about putting procedures in place and you know hitting these little one percenters so the car doesn't stop and just continues down a, a very strong path. With a new startup team like this, you would have, or you would be used to, a very organised, very structured systems. When you came into the team. Were your eyes open enough to what's missing and, and how much of that systematic work needs to be done to get everything in, into racing order? I wasn't surprised. I knew what I was in for. Like this team has done a fantastic job in a very short period of time. You know, like they've they've gone from a, a team that wasn't so good, and they've done a lot in a very short period of time. So I knew what I was in for. But uh, for me, it's just about putting all those procedures in place. So you know, so the guys almost don't make a mistake. You know, if you read the rule book or if you read the playbook, I should say, um, you know, there's no reason why things should happen. So. It, it wasn't a surprise, um, you know, there's still a big hurdle, a big hill to climb, um, you know, we still need to find some full-time staff and things like that, but uh, the team to date has done a fantastic job with the limited resources and people that they've had. For someone who perhaps doesn't understand the intricacies, just how much of a race team is documented in formal procedures on how you, from the race shop to actually the racetrack, everything is is done to order. Yeah, exactly. And like I said before, the, the procedures are so, uh, they're paramount to the car. All the preparation that's done in the factory, the race meeting's actually the easiest part because all the hard work's done at the factory and you got to dot all your T's and, uh, sorry, dot all your I's and cross all your T's before you get here. Um, and um, at this stage, this team has just sort of lacked a little bit in that. So, you know, all that lies on my shoulders. It's a big responsibility, but I'm looking forward to it and start to implement from day one all those procedures to stop things from happening. Does the relationship with Triple Eight get over the fact that you might not have any historical data going to different tracks all the time and not having that playbook previously? 
Yeah, no, we've, we've got a technical agreement with Triple Eight, so we still get to see all their data and all their information from the weekends, like day by day as each session finishes. So, you know, we still have a, a very good relationship there and that, that continues on, like nothing changes there. So all that information does come to the racetrack of a race meeting weekend, but there's still so much to do back at the factory, which, um, you know, we need to put our best foot forward and, and always try and progress with, their, with what we do at the track. We've been running a series over the last few weeks about the problem of not enough technical people in the sport and the, the challenges trying to train them. And are you suffering from COVID having taken many really good people out of the system? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think it's not only us; it's the whole of pit lane. You know, like it's very difficult. Um, some of the the more wealthier teams didn't really struggle, but you know, there's only a handful of them in pit lane, and and we struggled. And even trying to get a, a mechanical engineer out of university, you know, like they've, they've done all their years of study, and then as soon as they come to motorsport, you almost need to start with a fresh sheet of paper. Everything they've learned almost gets thrown out the window because it's such a different beast to this thing, and it's not easy to get your head around. And that's why they start as a junior data engineer then end up being a data engineer then you know they do the occasional race or practice day as a race engineer and then it's like it's almost like an apprenticeship they've got to start again you know like everything they've learned just goes out the window and you start again. You've been on both sides of the fence from a customer program side of things to a manufacturing team what's the attractiveness of coming to a customer team like Premier in a year where it's such a transition year from the end of Gen 2 or next gen to then Gen 3. Yeah, you're definitely right. The the attractiveness is next year for me. It's all about Gen 3 because I, I've said it a few times already in the in the last couple of months. It's going to be like the flat pack you buy from IKEA. Everyone gets it. You put it together and you race it. Everyone's going to have the same geometry. Everyone's going to have the same componentry. And the the bigger teams that do have that engineering prowess behind them, they won't be allowed to to you know, fabricate a, a new upright or new geometry and and make all these new fancy bits that make the cars faster and faster throughout the year. So what you get at the start of next year is going to be the same as what you have in December next year. And is that going to then potentially bring the costs down, not having to do mid-season upgrades or, or trying to tweak components? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, all, all those, like a, a, a pair of uprights for a V8 supercar is 40 grand. So, you know, and, and when you design one and it works, you don't just have one, you need spares and you need backups and things like that. So you can burn up a couple of hundred grand up very easy in this category. So to negate all that, you know, everyone's going to have exactly the same equipment. You buy it off the shelf from, you know, going to Bunnings, everyone's going to buy exactly the same thing. And then, you know, it's going to make for some good racing. Larry Perkins calls it socialist racing. Oh, oh does he? Yeah, well, he's a very clever man, yeah. <laughs> what do you think are the biggest steps you've got to put in place in the next two, three months? Yeah, it's definitely having full-time engineers. You know, like the, the engineers we have now do a great job, but unfortunately they're they're on a contract basis. They're not there at the factory doing the doing the work week in and week out. And like I said before, 90% of the race is won back at the factory. And because we don't quite have those guys there full-time, 24/7, they they help out a few days before and after a race meeting. But it's just having the brains trust there 24/7. That um, that's what we're trying to find at the moment. And sitting down, how confident are you with the Excel spreadsheets and making sure the budget balances? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's another big thing. I've got a um, Pete, Peter's very good at the moment. You know, he's got a um, he's allowing me to do a lot and spend a lot of money. But uh, you know, eventually, you know, you'd obviously have to watch your watch your pennies as well and make sure it's all getting spent in the right area. And and you know, again, that's all on me and, and making sure that we are doing things in the right areas and you know, tightening the belt in other areas where we we need to. 
when does the attention have to turn to next year and what Gen 3 is going to be? It, I guess it's a little bit easier for us because we we are going to be a customer to Triple Eight, so um, you know we will receive our car finished, ready ready to go. So it's all about everything outside of that, you know, making sure all the other spare parts and things are in place, so that when the car does turn up, we're we're sort of ready to hit the ground running. Um, let's just look at Matt Cook Incorporated, right? Um, and let's look at your motorsport career. You're born where? Born in New South Wales, but, okay. but don't hold that against me. Yeah. No, I won't indeed. I too was born in New South Wales, yeah. a bit before your time. Only a couple of years, mate. Uh, yeah, only a couple. You've aged well, I can tell you. Okay. 46 in two weeks. Yeah, right. I oh, yeah. Um, I remember 1946, it was a good year. <laughs> but anyway, back to it. So, born in New South Wales, motorsport, what your first involvement? You did a mechanical apprenticeship? Always been into motorbikes ever since I was a young bloke, riding riding peewees. I'm the perfect build to be a MotoGP rider, but unfortunately that career just fell shy. Um, yeah, very very interested in motorbikes. Still ride today, dirt bikes and road bikes. Uh, I love that, and I think like I said before, I, I fell into this industry, and, and I got to a stage where I was doing my apprenticeship. I was in my late teens, early twenties was trying to do something on motorbikes and realised that I was spending a lot of money to do that and then literally the decision was, yeah, I can go and work for a team, still be in racing and not have to pay for it myself. So that's and it. where was that job? At DJR, yeah, DJR. Dick Johnson Racing back, back, way back when, back in the late 90s with um, John Bow and, and Dick. So it was, um, it was very cool. I still remember my first race meeting at Winton. I think we were on the podium and I thought, how easy is this? You know, this is pretty cool. <laughs> but the competition was a little bit different to what it is today and the technology was a little bit different. But nonetheless, it was still amazing to um, to be a part of. And I was hooked from the first race meeting. Well, that's wonderful here. I'm probably sure I was here as well. Yeah, 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 you were. Race Facts was massive. It was a huge success. <laughs> yeah, I reckon you were still working out of your caravan or a Winnebago or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll leave that at that. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, and I know, of course, that you then chose after a number of years doing that, you went overseas. Yeah, I did. I, I think like anything, you know, I spent 10 years at DJR and not that you get stale, but you sort of, you want to challenge yourself with new and different things and an opportunity came about to work in A1GP and, and I took that with both hands and just ran with it and then, you know, like... That was nicknamed the World Cup of Motorsport, so there was all the different countries that got to host their own race. So you know, I was still living in Australia then, but flying out to each international race meeting and doing the container-type racing. Which team? Team USA. That was the first one I started and, with. And the team, the professional team that was running that? Yeah, Andretti back then. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, then, and then progressed to... I worked for a dams team after that, which was Team Portugal. Yep for the last two years, so three years in A1GP. I only went to four of the events, two in New Zealand, two in Australia. I got to know Alan Docking as a result of it, and yeah, I agree with you, the series, it was a wonderful series. Um, there were probably powers that you and I have never met, never will know, that probably sort of thought, we need to kill this series off, because it was a terrific series. It was, and I said, even when I went to Formula One, I said, if A1GP was still around, I'd still be doing it, because, um, it was. It allowed people like myself to get that single-seater experience, but then half a pit lane was full of guys that didn't want to do 21 races a year in Formula 1, still got paid a, a very handsome salary, and they could do the, the 9 or 10 races a year or whatever it was. So it was a stepping stone for me, but like a, a retirement village for some others. With the A1 model, is that a model that could be easily translated into supercars because they were doing it where common spare parts, common... Uh, common builds is that 
is that a model that you think they uh, supercars need to now transfer to because of the nature of what the next generation car will be? Yeah, de definitely. It's definitely getting a lot closer to that. So A1GP, they, they had a car that was built turnkey ready to go. So if you crashed a car, you could go down to the A1GP garage and they'd have a car there ready to go. And, you know, you, you have a crash, you, you rip a, an upright out of it or tear a corner up, you just go and get all your bits from there. And it was very good. It was very, um, very well thought of. It was a good business plan, a good business model. And, yeah, that could definitely be implemented here with, with you know, hopefully next year's car. There's definitely something you know supercars could have a truck full of spare bits and you just rock up and and get your parts and pay your bill and away you go is that what it translates like for gt racing or is it still a bit more like the supercar model where teams have to really keep their spares and keep everything there no no you, you're 100 right so with the the gt program at triple eight and, and the mercedes you know if we had an issue with the mercedes car you just go to the mercedes truck and get whatever part you wanted whether it be a a front grille or a fuel cell you know it didn't matter you could just go down to the truck and they would carry all the parts and you just go and get it as you need it you'd still keep some things you know you obviously need your own spare brakes and things like that but for some of the big ticket items you would just go straight down to the the truck and get it from there will that also translate in maybe there's one or two people you don't need back at the shop for inventory and then maintenance on these parts yeah i, I think so i think you know the gone are the the bigger teams that have a, a thousand design engineers in the office, you know, like that, that's sort of going to become a little bit um, of a unique area now. Like we, if you can't further develop anything, you don't need six design engineers sitting around and, uh, and your race engineers and data engineers. So, yeah, I think it's, um, it's going to be, as far as cost cutting go, like some interesting times ahead with the amount of people you're going to have in your, in your office. Um, going back in your career so after a number of years how long were you overseas or going over to the events then six years in total i did three years a1gp and then three years formula one okay and then you came back to australia yep yeah Queens came back queensland came back to yeah came back to queensland and and started at triple eight with the the car of the future yep so okay. it was good all right, so you've actually seen a number of incantations of supercars or V8 supercars or just plain supercars now as they are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, very, very long time. I yeah, feel, feel very old, you know, around back in the day of Dick and, and Russell Ingle, very young Russell Ingle back then, believe it or not. And then, yeah, followed through and, and you know, that... The six, the six years that I was away, you know, to be honest, I was a little bit nervous when I came back because six years out of any industry is, is a long time. But I was very fortunate that when I came back, it was car of the future. So it was new for everybody. No, nobody knew anything. And we all had to start with a, a clean slate. So it was good. You obviously had a safe and secure job. It's a very, very solid, well-respected business. Um, there's no reason why you needed to leave Triple Eight. Um, there are no sheriffs arriving at the doorstep, I assume. <laughs> but um, the thing is that because of your experience and having been in various categories and what was V8s back in the 90s, it must have helped you when you sat down to start planning how you would go about this new job as team principal. What, tell us, give us an idea of you. Blank sheet of paper, now what are you gonna do? Yeah, exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. And that's what Peter basically said as well. He's like, here's a blank sheet of paper, give me a, a wish list of what you want and what you need. And, and I think it just, it's the whole my 26 years experience in motorsport, you know, whether it be overseas in Formula One or back here or A1GP, 
it, it just allows you to lean on that and, and you learn things all, every day, you're still, still learning and you just you know what works and what doesn't and for me everything comes down to attention to detail so if you can instill that in all of your, your staff around you, whether they be engineering group or mechanical or whatever, it, um, it's not a crazy science, it can be broken down very simply and it's just about systematically going through and doing each process bit by bit. Have you got a top three from your first weekend with the team that on Monday morning or whatever days is the first day back in the shop, I've got this is one, this is two, this is three that we've got to have right for the next time the car comes out of the transport. Yeah, absolutely. There's some very big ticket items there. You know, we don't need to go into too much detail here, but, you know, unfortunately, they're not always going to be good things as well. You know, like there's some big things that we need to change and step up to. and. We can't have performance until we have reliability and at the moment we need some massive reliability and the performance will come with that. So yeah, there's going to be um, a good debrief uh, next week. Peter had said to me when I started talking to him about race formats and events and things like that, he said he's bought a ticket on the bus and he'll get on it and see where it goes. I mean, obviously you in that position as a team principal that you've got what a series is here. Um, and so far it seems, you know, there have been some very good races um, and fortunately no one's loading a car into a truck with a forklift so that's a good race weekend as far as I'm concerned as an ex-mechanic. But are there things that you could see where they need to polish a little bit? You know, like, I mean, here was a wonderful day for the weekend of, of great weather. Um, crowds were pretty good, I would have thought, but is there things that you see that need changing at all? Yeah, definitely, and it comes from um, practice sessions, like how people speak on the radio, how people speak to each other in the debriefs, how the debriefs are run, how that you know, there's just a, a few small things in, in certain areas that we're lacking, but they're the one percenters, and as soon as you, you fix the one percenters in all the different areas, you know, that, that eventually comes. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot to tidy up in a lot of areas, it's not just one. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much, Matt, for joining us. And we wish you all the very best at Premier Racing. I uh, look forward to watching the results. I'm not going to be going to Darwin. I first went there in 77 and, you know, enough said about that. But um, we wish you all the best for the rest of the year. And I know that we'll be catching up with you at a Sandown, a Bathurst and other events. So thanks, Matt Cook, for joining us on Inside Supercars. Perfect, John. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Wonderful. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.